Hey everybody, and welcome back to my YouTube channel. Uh, today I am joined by author Matt Ruff. Matt, how are you doing today? Doing well, thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. So, so uh, glad you could come on. And uh, so, so Matt, if you guys aren't aware, is the author of Lovecraft Country, among several other novels. Uh, but we're mostly going to talk a little bit about Lovecraft Country today, since it has a HBO series that's starting up in about six days. So. Uh, Hooray! Exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's we're still bouncing off the walls. I got to I got to watch over the weekend a sneak preview of the first five episodes, and I'm still. Yeah, so, yeah, it's been it's it's been a really amazing thing, and I just you know it's one of those things where I'm. This is very German of me, but I keep waiting for my karma to balance out and something really bad to happen. So far, though, I'm I'm okay, um, but I'm just delighted. I couldn't be happier with the way it's worked out. So. That's awesome. Well, uh, kind of before we get to that, uh, I want to know a little bit about you. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind, maybe tell me a little bit about your life, about growing up, and then sure. how you got into writing. So um, my dad is uh, was from the Midwest. Uh, he's a Lutheran pastor who came to New York City and became a hospital chaplain. My mother was a missionary's daughter who was born in southern Brazil in the jungle, Grew up in jungles of Argentina um, and came to the U.S. when she was 23. Uh, met my dad. They got married. Uh, and our house in Queens was basically Ellis Island for all the other South American relatives uh, coming up. So uh, I grew up in this multicultural theological debate society with uh, there's just lots of arguing and sharing of different viewpoints and and. This probably has a lot to do with why, although my novels are all very different in terms of subject matter, they're all some way or another about either clashes between people from very different cultures or attempts on my part to understand uh, the lives and perspectives of people who are very different from me. Um, and I seem to have come out of the womb wired for storytelling. I, you know, I always say I decided I wanted to be a novelist when I was five, but really I can't remember a time when I didn't want to tell stories for a living. And um, my parents were very supportive of this. So I, you know, my mom bought me a, an IBM typewriter back when that was the, that was basically the last best version of typewriter when typewriters still existed. So. Um, and I just grew up teaching myself how to tell stories. And so by the time I got to college, I already had a fair amount of practice behind me. And I took uh, English with a concentration in creative writing at Cornell, which was a horribly impractical decision if I had not become a novelist because I had no desire to teach. And there's really nothing else you can do with a creative writing degree except that. So, um, but I got lucky in that one of my teachers was Alison Lurie um, who's a, a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist. And she very generously offered to introduce me to her agent. Um, and my first novel, first published novel, Pool on the Hill, was my senior thesis at Cornell. So I wrote that, finished it in my senior year. And uh, Melanie Jackson, my agent, sold it six months after I graduated. So I, I, I only ever had one real job in my adult life working as a waiter at this bookstore cafe in called the Reader's Feast in Hartford, Connecticut. And I worked there for a few months until Fool on the Hill was sold. And then uh, ever since, I've basically been uh, a novelist. And, you know, I, there was a long period during my 20s when I was poor. 
Um, but I always made just enough money from the books and from other sources that I, I was able to keep going until I built up enough of a backlist to actually start making a good living at it. And uh, so now, 35 years into my career, suddenly I'm an overnight success with Lovecraft Country, and, and that's nice. <laughs> but I said, I think we, uh, I think we all had a had an opportunity in our twenties to be poor. So, <laughs> but to to do it on an uh, on you know selling books, I, I'm sure that's a different kind of poor for sure. Well, yeah, but it was you know I wasn't married. I you know I didn't have dependents, uh, and I was living up in Maine for a large part of the time, which is relatively inexpensive. So I you know I was I was living off credit card debt a lot of the time, but I did <laughs> I did manage to keep myself going and. Part of what helped with that was that um, Fool on the Hill actually sold in Germany as well. Uh, and I, there was a long time when I was actually more popular over there than I was here in the States. And so that that helped as well. I got to go over and tour in Germany for you know a couple of my novels. And, um, uh, and I've also just had the good fortune over the years to have publishers who were willing to let me follow my lead and, and write whatever I wanted. So I never got typed in any specific genre. And so I... I kind of backed into this reputation of never writing the same book twice that, you know, so Fool in the Hill was this college fantasy and then Sewer, Gas and Electric. My second novel is sort of a science fiction satire of Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. And then my third novel, which kind of raised me to a new level of critical awareness, Set This House in Order, is a story about uh, friendship between two people who both have multiple personality disorder. And and from there, I was just kind of off to the races. And then, you know, I. Uh, uh, yeah, and so I've just been able to to keep going, and and uh, then with Lovecraft Country, I've finally really broken through. Um, the other novel that I think people may know me for is Bad Monkeys, my fourth novel, which is sort of a Philip K. Dickian, uh, you know, um, psychological thriller, and that is currently under Option Universal and being developed by Margot Robbie. So um, wow, so we have high hopes for that as well. Um, but yeah, so here I am. <laughs> That's it, just hitting on all cylinders now, huh? <laughs> so you had kind of the uh, Hasselhoff effect uh, with your first novel, Hives. <laughs> man, man, you're dating yourself with that joke, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you never you never really have an opportunity to pull that one out. So, <laughs> so um, tell, me, tell me a little bit about... Uh, your writing process. I'm, I'm sure it's changed since, uh, you know, your first novel, which was your thesis. Um, but kind of how, I mean, how has it progressed as you've, you know, now written seven novels uh, and, or has it changed at all? Have you, have you stayed with the same kind of process? I mean, in terms of how I, how I conceive of the novels, it's, it's generally always been the same where I, I, you know, I'll, I think about the books a long time before I start writing. And by the time I'm actually ready to start working, I'll have a very good sense of what the first third or so of the novel is like, and I'll know where I'm going. I know how it's going to end and I'll often have the last line in mind. Um, but in between that very clear opening and that, that end point, there's this murkier area where I know more or less what's going to happen, but there's large fog. It's like, you know, the, the metaphor I always use, it's like mountain peaks poking up out of the fog. It's like, yeah, this set piece is going to be somewhere and this is going to happen somewhere, but the connective tissue is largely missing. And so I, I generally will start writing the first third and then by the time that's done and I'm happy with it, the, the fog will have receded a little further and I know where the next 
part is going to be. And I keep going. And then, you know, until this glorious day when the front end and the back end meet up and I've got the whole thing in my hands. Um, now with Lovecraft Country, it was a little different because it is a, an episodic novel where, um, you know, it was originally envisioned sort of as a TV series. So, and, and when I, I, I reimagined it as a novel when I couldn't get the initial folks I was pitching it to to see it that way. But the idea was that it was going to be this sort of X-Files story where you had a recurring cast of characters, in this case, a black family who owned a travel agency in, in Chicago in 1954, having a series of weekly paranormal adventures. And then like the X-Files threaded together by this larger arc story. So, and I wanted to preserve that structure of letting each of my protagonists have their own star turn at the center of a reimagined weird tale. Um, but I didn't really want to write a book of short stories. So I came up with this modular structure where each chapter was sort of an episode of a, it was like I was binge, I was, you know, as you have the literary equivalent of like binge watching uh, a series of television where each, each chapter was not a story so much as an episode of this season. Mm -hmm. So you had the pilot episode and then this one and then this one and so on. And um, so that structure allowed me to jump back and forth more than I would normally have done. Um, so that was kind of a departure being able to do that. Uh, and uh, yeah, but otherwise my process really hasn't changed a whole lot. I mean, it was still a matter of getting that pilot that that opening really well locked before I started and then you know as I went along sort of like okay I kind of know what these other episodes are going to be and I definitely know where I want to end it and it's just how is it all going to fit together and that sort of progressed as I went along and then in terms of the day-to-day -day process I I find I get my most work done if I start writing as soon as I get up in the morning uh and um you know, if I, if I do that thing where you're like, well, I'm just going to check email first, or I'm going to go on Twitter for, you know, 30 minutes that will set the tone of the day where I end up, um, you know, if once you, once you open that door, it's like, it's very easy to sort of give yourself permission to take the whole day off and screw around. So if I, if I let myself do that, I generally don't get as much done. And that's why it's, it's very useful to have deadlines sort of looming in the distance where I realize, you know, if I screw around too many days, I'm not going to meet that deadline. So. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can imagine, you know, you get kind of stuck in the, uh, in the never ending pit of social media <laughs> or, you know, video games or whatever. It's just, yeah. So I, I have to sort of force myself to be disciplined because I'm not naturally disciplined. Um, so I don't feel like most authors are, <laughs> especially, especially with social media. Cause you know, you, you've, at some point you've got to be a little bit of uh, you know, your own publicity, even though, you know, especially with publishers, they do a majority of it, but you know, you've got to have some kind of presence for fans and, you know, I've also got to push your book a little bit here and there. And yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not very good at the social media stuff either. Yeah. It's, that's an issue as well. Um, I mean, you do have authors like Stephen King who his addiction is the writing itself. Like the idea that this guy is doing six pages a day, even on holidays, I, I would love to have that mental condition that makes that happen. But um, yeah. Uh, but yes, it's true for a lot of people. It's just the writing is the hardest part is getting yourself to sit down and do it. So yeah, absolutely. Um, who would uh, who would you say maybe past and present are some of your writing influences? Well, King looms really large as when I was a kid. Um, uh, 
John Crowley is another really big influence. He's somebody more, fewer people probably know, but he's really a writer's writer. His most famous book is Little Big, which is a, a really wild story about this family who live on the edge of a wild wood and have this relationship with fairies. And it's really worth checking out if you haven't. Um, he also wrote a book called The Translator that's very good about a, a woman in the 1960s who gets involved with her professor who may actually be a, a disgraced archangel who helps prevent the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis from destroying the world. It's a really wonderful story. Um, uh, gosh, um, I mean, I just have so many influences that drawn from all over the place because I, I was never a person who was really hung up on a specific genre. So I just read whatever I liked as a kid. I mean, I, and then a lot of my influences are just, I liked reading weird reference books and weird trivia books, which gave me just sort of weird ideas that I could weave into fiction. So, you know, big, big tip of the hat to the book of lists and Guinness book of world records and, and other stuff like that. So, yeah, but I've just, I've just been always kind of a magpie in terms of influences. So, um, and I always get stuck when people ask me, well, list your top 10 influences. So Right, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, especially if you read all different kinds of, you know, genres. I mean, I, I mm -hmm. read fantasy, I read horror, I read thrillers, you know, yeah. name it. I mean, the only thing about the only thing I don't read is romance. I just can't quite, can't quite get into it. If there's romance in a book, I'll read it. But as, as a genre, it's just, it's not my thing. My wife reads it. So we kind of balance each other out. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I've, I've, I've definitely read things that would qualify as that, but if you're talking about specifically like the Harlequin type marketed romances, that's true. That's never really been my thing either. Um, yeah. But, yeah. 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 I mean, but yeah, I, I completely understand. I mean, it's, it's hard to really pinpoint, you know, when you've a been reading for so long and B you've read all different, you know, authors from, you know, here and there across the world. Uh, Cause I mean, I, I know I'm started reading a lot more now, like UK authors uh, and even, uh, I mean, I've kind of with uh, with the fantasy realm because I've I've been doing a whole lot with the publisher Orbit. Uh, a lot of their uh, newer releases, I guess you'd probably say maybe half and half uh, would be in the UK uh, or some of Europe, and then you have a few that are from the US. So, uh, but yeah, as, as far as as far as picking one, I mean, my bookshelves kind of tell a tale. There's 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 tons of influences. So. Well, the other thing too, is I find as I've, you know, now that, now that we do have, you know, Netflix and other streaming services that, that binge watching TV shows and, and things like that is, is become, is taken up a lot of the space that novel reading used to, because it scratches the same itch of long form storytelling. So, you know, like, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm obviously no, no surprise, a big Joss Whedon fanboy. Um, my wife and I are working through Sons of Anarchy right now, which is amazing, and and which is kind of interesting because one of the writers on that show was Misha Green, who is now the the showrunner of Lovecraft Country. So, and I, I I kind of knew that, but I had forgotten it. Then I saw her name in the credits in an early episode. I'm like, oh gosh, of course. So, um, <laughs> but yeah. So, and I'm I've been finding too. There's this weird thing on Netflix now that they've got so much competition and a lot of their back catalogs being yanked by other streaming services. They've started investing more into um, uh, Bollywood and, and other Indian productions, and that stuff is that's a that's a, a a realm of film and TV that I just had no experience with, and a lot of it is really interesting. So I've I've been discovering a lot of stuff there. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, there's just, there's just, yeah, that's my new thing is TV. And now it's like, I, I, I should read more than I do, but it's just, 
it's fun to just sit and watch the stuff and and um you know my wife and i will be sort of kibitzing as we watch this the the different things so it's great i gotcha yeah i've i found it hard especially you know since this whole pandemic started to really get into books uh i just feel like i, well, I don't have a mind space for it but but binge watching a show i can do i, I don't know what the the difference it's, is it's but. the focus you have to with with reading you kind of it's a little more active in that you've got to be holding it in front of your head and focusing on the words whereas tv you can just sit there and sort of it comes at you and yeah it's just it's just easier to follow i think and if you need yeah. a distraction you can be flipping on twitter and if there's a slow part in the story you focus more on you know the ipad in your hand and but you can't do that you can't multitask that way when you're reading so that's probably part of it so yeah, I, I have to agree. Yeah, I don't think there's a day that goes by where I haven't at least scrolled once on Twitter while watching a TV show. <laughs> so yeah. so it, it, it does it does definitely make sense. It's a lot easier to do that. Um, so kind of before we get on to, to Lovecraft Country, can you tell me a little bit about your newest novel, 88 Names, which was released in March? Yes, the new book is uh, it's set about 20 years in the future, and the protagonist is a guy named John Chu, who is what is known as a Sherpa, which is a uh, a paid guide to online role playing games. And so the way this works is suppose you you know you want to play the futuristic version of World of Warcraft, but you do not have hundreds of hours to invest in you know building up your paladin to 200 levels so you can play the really fun parts of the game. So what you do is you you can pay John Chu a fee and he will provide you with a ready-made high-level character with cool weapons and armor and a team of skilled teammates to come in and play with you and basically cater a night's adventure. And then, you know, for an extra fee, you can keep your character at the end of the night. And um, of course, this is this is a this is not sanctioned by the game company. So if they catch you employing a Sherpa or working as a Sherpa, they will ban your account. Um, so part of the cost of doing business is that, you know, John Chu has to keep multiple accounts. So one gets knocked out. He just brings another. So he has 88 names as part of the, the, the idea. So anyway, he gets a new client who claims to be a, a rich, famous person who, you know, with, with powerful enemies who chooses to remain anonymous, who calls himself Mr. Jones, but he's willing to pay $100,000 a week for a, a comprehensive guide to the world of VR gaming. And of course, Chu is a little skeptical about this, but the guy is willing to pay the first week's salary up front and the money's real, so he takes the job. But as it gets underway, he begins to suspect that Mr. Jones is actually North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, who's interested in <laughs> VR for more nefarious reasons than simple entertainment. And um, and the story, the first two thirds of the story are set entirely in virtual reality, either you know virtual chat rooms or various game worlds. And everyone that she was interacting with, not just you know Mr. Jones, but his coworkers and even his ex-girlfriend Darla are people he's never met in real life. And since in VR, people have total control over how they look and sound, it's like you never really know who you're dealing with. And you know even if they give you their name or the key to their social media account, that can be fake too. So it's this, he's constantly second guessing even who people close to him really are. And uh, so that's the basic setup is it's this cat and mouse game in cyberspace. And then in the final third of the novel, we come out into the real world and the masks come off and you see what's really going on. But it's, that's the, that's the basic idea. It was a lot of fun to write. And it, it grew out of, of again, a, a, a childhood spent 
when I wasn't writing, wasting way too much time playing games and video games. And so it's maybe an attempt to earn back some of that time I should have spent writing that didn't. <laughs> so you, can, you kind of turn it on its head and you write yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you have a lot of experience with people trying to sell you accounts? I know when I uh, was a big on, uh, on Warcraft 3, there were always people trying to sell, you know, high level accounts. Really? And, no, yeah. no, I... Well, for one thing, I just I just would have been too cheap. I I would rather I would rather waste the time and 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 get the characters myself. So because that's half the fun is the the ridiculous, uh, you know, repetitive. Oh yes, let me spend you know, run through the same exact dungeon ten times to get that one thing I want. So yeah, that that to me is part of the appeal. So. I gotcha. Yeah, I. Uh... It's it's a mental illness, but a fun one, you know. So. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was a big thing about, uh, you know, because when you would win so many games, you'd get a certain icon of a character. And so yeah. there were people that would somehow find a way to get, say, 1,500 wins with, like, a very short, you know, small amount of losses and have, like, all these icons. They're like, okay, we'll sell you this account. It's like, so how, the, A, how the world did you do that? And, B, I'm going to spend how much to do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I that was that was part of the thing was just realizing. I mean, this the, the initial inspiration for this was reading about gold farming, this whole thing where people would sell, you know, obviously would, would play the games and then sell the virtual gold for real money or virtual magic weapons for real money. And I was just kind of fascinated by that. But then I just realized, well, let me see if I can take it to another level and just came up with this idea of, well, yeah, what if you if you had this thing where people were actually paying catering services or Sherpa services, basically, and um and eventually I decided that could actually work and decided to take a run on it. And I, I had a great time writing it. So um, it's almost like, it's almost like taking microtransactions to another level. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, you, you can spend your real money to get virtual money. And then when it's gone, you don't get your money back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. All right. So kind of, kind of the main reason we're here, we're going to talk a little bit about Lovecraft country. Uh, I know you, over the years, you've had several interviews about the book uh, now you, I'm sure you've had several interviews about the series. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm. I'm. I'm the popular boy for the next couple of weeks, and then uh, I'll go back into relative obscurity. Hopefully not. Hopefully, yeah, you know, hopefully I, you know. No, no, I'm. I'm good with that. As long as I get to keep doing what I want to do, that's all. I. That's all I need. I don't need to be famous. I. I just enjoy getting to to tell the stories I want to tell. So. Um, and then you know, and then when when a when a book is made into a movie, you know, it's it's pretty nice. Yeah, yeah <laughs> or or into a TV show like like Lovecraft Country is. So well, and this is uh, just yeah, yeah. They're really the the job they've done on this, from what I've seen of it, is just more than I could have hoped for. So it's it's going to be amazing, and I, I can't wait to see what the reaction is going to be. But I think it's going to be spectacular. So absolutely. So so this is your sixth novel, uh, and mm -hmm. it's being produced by HBO as a series, uh, being. Produced by Jordan Peele, Misha Green, who we talked about earlier, who's also the creator and executive producer of Underground, and J.J. Abrams. And also happens to start on August 16th, so just about six days. So first yeah. off, uh, again, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, can only imagine, yeah. I can only imagine how exciting that is. But how does it feel uh, having one of your novels made into such a big production, especially with the names like Peele, Green, and Adams? I mean, it's really indescribable at this point. Again, I, it's just, I, I sort of keep waiting for the other shoe to drop where something bad happens to balance it out or like, you know, there's still six days. There's still time for me to get hit by a bus before this <laughs> occurs. But um, yeah, I, 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 I just 
part of me still can't believe it. And it was just a lot of it was just an incredible good fortune and timing that the the novel came out just as Jordan Peele was finishing Get Out and thinking about his next project. And, you know, we were on the same wavelength basically about what we were doing. And, and uh, but it was an interesting experience where, yeah, I got a call from my CIA agent who said Jordan Peele wanted to talk to me. And, and my agent was a little puzzled because at this time Jordan was known mostly for the Key and Peele show and, and for comedy. But, you know, that my agent basically said, oh yeah, he's thinking about getting into horror. And, so I was like, fine with that. I, I, I have no problem with, you know, crossing genres. And, and I had a really good phone conversation with Jordan and Misha. And uh, it was one of those, having talked to Hollywood people before, sometimes you're on the same page. Sometimes it's like they've read an entirely different book. But this was probably the best single conversation I ever had where we were just, we all saw the same potential and were excited for the same reason. So it was very easy to say, yeah, these are these are the people to run with this. And then and then Get Out happened and blew up, and that just really made the rest of it very easy. Because at that point, Jordan could write his own ticket on what he wanted to do next, and I just was the lucky beneficiary of that. So, um, and I also really was fortunate for Misha's involvement because I had already seen Underground, and I knew what she could do. And um, so, yeah, the the her development of this has been amazing. So, and then the rest of the talent involved. I mean, HBO is really that's that's the the crowning thing is just that they they have so many talented people in 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 their in their you know orbit so and like M michael k williams is mantras i'm like geez you know and then Jeremy <laughs> Bell and and jonathan majors who are both amazing actors but really the whole cast has just been you know has been really cool and uh and you know i i got to meet a lot of them on set and they are all wonderful people in person too so um, so yeah, it's the whole thing has been this, this weird dream come true and it's just very weird to have it finally coming out because I've been sort of living with this for the past three years and there are times it never totally leaves your mind, but, um, you know, but there are long stretches where I'm not directly involved with the production so I can sort of, and I'm focused on writing my next novel and, and stuff like that. And then something they'll drop the trailer and I'm like, oh wow, it's almost here and Twitter goes crazy. And um, the funniest part of that being that, of course, you know, for me, I've been living with this for so long. And then you, your trailer drops and there are people who had not heard about the production at all. And it's like it, you get so weirdly self-centered where you're like, well, how can there be anyone left in America who hasn't heard about this? <laughs> but um, yeah, even even like the the third trailer, it's like there were still new people coming to it. And and it's also very funny to have people who don't know it's based on a book and they're just trying to guess based on the title what the thing is actually about and uh so that's that's been sort of an interesting thing too but um yeah it's just been an amazing experience i mean i can imagine i mean it's, it's gotta just be mind-blowing i mean i know three years in you know you still you know have some you know some goosebumps about it and so forth but i, mean, yeah. I just I can't imagine that initial like jordan peele wants to talk to you and you're like wait what <laughs> it's, like, it's funny it's like, the initial conversations by that point, I, I mean, I, you know, I talked to people enough that uh, it's always exciting and, and it's always, you know, it's always a fun conversation, but you learn after the first couple of times that until, until something actually happens, that's the conversation is really all you get and the memory right. of it. And, and so a lot of times it doesn't go anywhere. You'll have what you think is a good conversation. Nothing happens. It was just that this time, good stuff kept happening and that was neat. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, it's like, yes, I'm initially excited, but I'm also, I know, yeah, I've been excited before, but yeah, it just kept going. And, and then at some point you just were like, oh, this is real. Let me start bouncing <laughs> off the walls for serious now. So <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, this is, this is actually happening. I can, uh, I can finally go scream around the house and tell, yeah. tell all my friends about it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so as of this morning, so their series has already received tons of rave reviews and already has a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So that's going to make you feel pretty good already. Uh, even yeah. before it actually hits. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's, that was really nice to see. And, um, you know, I just got to see the, the first few episodes myself over the weekend. So I saw some of these reviews before I'd had a chance to see it myself. And I, I knew it was going to be good, but it's just like, you know, you, you, you're still holding your breath until you actually see it for yourself and you see what other people think. And once the reviews started dropping and, and I saw, you know, Rolling Stone and Time Magazine and, and some of the others, I was just like, okay, uh, wow. You know, this is, this is more than even I, I had hoped for. So uh, yeah, it's, it's been quite a weekend. I got to say. Awesome. Um, so do you feel that both readers of your works and those maybe not familiar with it will find plenty to enjoy in the show? Just, just having seen, I guess, some preview episodes. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I, I think, I, I mean, it's, you know, obviously you're still going to have to enjoy this particular genre of storytelling. Um, but I, I think it's got a lot for a lot of different people. And, um, and I, I think that's true of my novels as well. Even if the, the main, genre that something slotted in isn't necessarily your thing. I try to make my, my stuff as broadly appealing as I can. Um, and I, I think the show will, will be interesting and surprising to a lot of folks. And so, yeah, I, I, I would hope so. But I guess, especially for those that aren't familiar at all, what it's going to be like and go in completely blind, <laughs> they're going to be pretty surprised. And there's a part of me that thinks that would be a cool way to go about it. Yeah, it, it would be really interesting to dive in and see it. Um, so yeah, but we'll we'll see what we'll see what the reactions are. Again, it, it has been interesting watching people try to guess what it's like just based on the trailer and the title. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I, I'm gonna say I can only imagine all the all the different reactions. You're just kind of like you're just kind of sitting there doing this a little bit, you know, just like yeah. who's gonna guess it, you know. <laughs> Um, do you feel that last year's immense success of the HBO series Watchmen has already garnered you an even bigger initial audience? Yeah, it probably has. I mean, Watchmen is definitely in the same ballpark in terms of it. And it spoke to me right away. As soon as we started watching, it was like, oh, this is great. And um, particularly because I was I was familiar with the source material and I'd seen the, the previous movie made of it, which I was okay, but not didn't speak to me quite as much. And I thought this, the, the, the HBO series was just really much more my, my jam than, uh, than the, the movie was. And it was a great way of taking what was good about Watchmen that, that did speak to me and doing something new and different with it. That was still pretty faithful to the original idea. So that was a great interpretation. Um, and, and yeah, it definitely, the, the, the success of that, again, did tend to underscore that, yeah, that the kind of story that Lovecraft Country is, is probably going to have a huge audience as well. So. Absolutely. Uh, so can you give a brief sale uh, on the book, Lovecraft Country? Sure. Uh, to those who maybe haven't stumbled upon the pages. So basically it's, it's an X-Files type story where you have uh, a family who own a, um, it's the 1950, 1954 Chicago, this family, the Turner family, uh, and actually it's two half brothers, um, 
Montrose Turner and his son Atticus Turner, who is the main character, um, and uh, Atticus's uncle George Barry, who's is a half brother of Montrose. They own a travel agency in Chicago and publish a fictional version of the Green Book called the Safe Negro Travel Guide, which basically lists. Um, you know, hotels and restaurants and other accommodations across the country that accept black travelers, which was a, a thing you needed back then, particularly, this is this is a misconception people have, not so much in the South where there was extensive signage telling you where you could and couldn't go as a black person, but in the, in the North and West where things were just as segregated, but you often had to guess whether uh, a motel would welcome you or not. Um, and um, so they published this and Atticus basically ends up working as a, uh, a field researcher for the guide. So his job is to drive around the country looking for places that will take him in. And Atticus and his uncle George are also huge nerds. So they're big fans of fantasy and science fiction and horror. And um, the, the story is basically about hey, how they and their extended family get drawn into a series of real life weird tales. Um, and so it's a combination of paranormal horror and you know some of it Lovecraftian, some of it otherwise, and uh, and then the sort of the more mundane terrors of life in Jim Crow America, and uh, and sort of ask the question of which is the bigger threat to your safety or sanity, you know the 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 thing under the bed or the the white policeman waiting for you at the edge of the sundown town. Um, and it's you know the the novel is a series of episodes, each one sort of allowing a different member of the cast to sort of star in a, a real life weird tale. But it also is part of this larger arc story about um, the, the Turner family's relationship to this weird cabal of white sorcerers from New England. And uh, that's the big payoff is what, what happens with them. So that's the basic setup. And then the, the title is sort of a double entendre where, um, because I, I, I needed a thematic bridge basically between horror and racism and Lovecraft was the obvious choice because he's both. He's this incredibly important and talented horror writer, somebody whose work I actually appreciate quite a bit, but he was also an unreconstructed white supremacist. And so Lovecraft Country is like both the, the realm of paranormal horror where monsters live, but it's also in a sense white America where a different kind of monster lives. And, and again, it's that question of what is worse to deal with. Um, so it's supernatural horror, but it's also historical fiction. And, and then it's all of these other genres as well of science fiction and fantasy and, and you know, whatever else seemed to work in, in the particular episode I was working on. I gotcha. Um, what, uh, I guess, what inspired you to write this anthology-esque novel? Since it's not really just, you know, like you said, it's 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 almost episodic uh, as far as the as the, the stories go, but it's really one, I guess, mm -hmm. large story encompassed. Well, I, yeah, I back in two thousand seven, I had been invited to pitch a series of of you know TV series ideas, and Lovecraft Country was one of the ones I came up with, and and this was a basically my attempt to do Matt Ruff's version of the X-Files and, but with, you know, a black family owning a, 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 a travel agency in 1950s rather than white FBI agents in the 1990s. And I couldn't get anyone to bite on that. So, but the story stayed with me and I really wanted to try and, and do something with it. And so I, I had to come up with a way to make it work as a novel while still preserving this sort of monster of the week aspect uh, of the story. And that was sort of, I eventually came up with the idea of, of doing this literary version of binge watching a series of TV where it was like, almost like I was gonna do my version of the TV show, but in print. 
And with the idea in the back of my head that if, if the novel worked well enough, it could also serve as a proof of concept that no, see, really, this is a good idea. Um, and as far as the longer term influences, I, I, I mean, the, the er moment of the novel actually goes back to my college days when I was at Cornell and I was friends with a guy named Joseph Scandalbury, who was the RHD at Ujima, which is a, 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 a dorm that was basically uh, affiliated with the Africana Studies program. So, you know, it was, it was, um, it was the black dorm, although people of all races lived there. And, and Joe and I became friends and, and part of his job was to sort of spread enlightenment among well-meaning but perhaps naive white people like myself at the time. And so um, he loved dropping little truth bombs on me. And so one of the things I would do when I was at Cornell, I've always been somebody who would go for long walks. It's where I come up with my ideas and where I work through plot points when I'm writing. And so I would go for these long walks around campus. And um, Cornell at that time is this little cosmopolitan island surrounded by rural farmland. So you walk five miles in any direction and you're in the middle of the boondocks. And so I would go out and get lost and, you know, wander 10 or 15 miles and eventually make my way back to campus. And one day I stopped by to see Joe and I mentioned what I'd been up to. And he said, oh, you should go for a walk out there too, Joe. And he just kind of laughed at me and he said, Matt, I'm black. I can't, I can't be walking around the, the farms up here. I, you know, I want to live to see graduation. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We're in New York. We're in the North. And, you know, and he just laughed again and said, you know, yeah, we're in the North. Why do you think that makes a difference? And, you know, I thought about it. And the thing was, yeah, I, when I went on these walks, I, I often didn't encounter anybody because it was really lonely country once you got out beyond Ithaca. But, um, but the kinds of people you would see, they were all white. Uh, they were the kind of folks who typically drove pickup trucks and had gun racks in them and, you know, big dog riding in the bed. And I didn't have to worry about that even when my hair was long. But um, if I had looked like Joe, it's entirely possible that the reception I got would have been very different. And it was the kind of place where if you did get in trouble out there, this was before cell phones. So you could easily just disappear and not be seen again. And so the that just really struck me. I think that was one of the, those aha moments when I just kind of realized that it just never occurred to me that Joe and I are living in the same place, but for him, it's an entirely different country in a way than it is for me. And he's got to worry about stuff that I don't. So that stayed with me. And uh, it was also through Joe, I ended up meeting a, a guy named Professor James Turner, who worked at the, and taught at the Africana Study Center. And I, I you know, I, I just took a class or two with him and, and learned a bunch of stuff from him. And you know, it didn't change my life necessarily immediately, but the things that they they said to me stayed with me and I thought about them and they fed into my fiction. And uh, eventually after a very long time, uh, you know, it, it sort of led to what became Lovecraft Country when I, you know, it influenced what I was thinking about when I started thinking about this story, this, this my version of the X-Files. Um, and another influence uh, was a woman named Pam Knowles wrote an, an essay called Shame, which is, you know, about her, her travails as a, a science fiction fan of color, you know, and she, she very much like Atticus in the novel sort of grew up just wanting to love science fiction and, and be left alone to like it. And her parents, particularly her father, would kind of push her on this, you know, she talks about watching... Uh, TV reruns in the basement with her dad and, and, you know, and he would just mock her and he just like, like, Oh, what's this one called planet of the white people? Because she's loving these genres that don't include any black characters or when they do only include stereotypes. And, and, you know, when you're a kid, you just want to like what you like and you don't want your parents picking at it. But 
her folks would nudge her about it. And sort of her aha moment was going to see Star Wars for the first time, which, you know, for her, as for me and a lot of people in my generation was this religious, this quasi religious experience, you go to see Star Wars. And she enjoyed it for all the reasons I did, but it was also the moment when she finally got what her parents were trying to tell her because she's watching this amazing show and realizing, oh yeah, there's like almost nobody black in this, except that one guy who gets blown up, you see him for two minutes over the Death Star. And and so it was a, a wonderful, but also it broke her heart. And she writes about this very eloquently and that really spoke to me too and kind of fed into this novel and, and made me wanna sort of try and convey that as well, that idea of the difficulty of, you know, this is somebody in the nineties and, you know, or somebody in the, in the seventies and eighties and nineties, but what's it like back in the fifties um, to be, you know, uh, uh, a black nerd trying to love these genres that don't love you back, that don't have space for you. And, and, you know, how do you cope with that? And so that's a big part of the novel as well. Um, so these are sort of all the things that factored into it and, and that got me thinking about it. And um, and again, because because of my upbringing, because I, I did grow up in this, you know, this household sort of with relatives coming in from, from all different countries in South America. And, and I have always been really interested in understanding perspectives of people different from myself. So it just seemed natural to me to having become interested in these kinds of these people's stories and these people's experience to try and capture that in a, in a novel form. And so that all fed into this and led me to this and, and seems to have worked out. I gotcha. If you're okay, I want to, I want to read just a tiny bit. Uh, mm -hmm. It kind of goes, goes with what you're talking about with the, uh, with shame. Mm -hmm. uh, and it kind of, it, it kind of is almost exactly what you said. Um, but uh you know, Uncle George and Atticus are talking. His Uncle George wasn't much help. It's not as if your father's wrong, he said one time when Atticus was complaining. But you love these stories, he said. You love them as much as I do. Yeah. And George goes, I do love them, but stories are like people, Atticus. Loving them doesn't make them perfect. You try to cherish their virtues and overlook their flaws. The flaws are still there, though. And he goes, but you don't get mad, not like Pop does. No, that's true. I don't get mad. Not at stories. They do disappoint me sometimes. Sometimes they stab me in the heart. And uh, I mean, ever since reading that, I mean, it's just stuck with me and stuck with me and stuck with me. And you, you kind of reiterating that through your story about how that, how that touched you and kind of made you think more about it. I mean, it's just, it, yeah, it that is. seems to be a favorite passage of a lot of people's. And I was just trying to capture there. It's like part of the problem with the way we talk about this stuff is a lot of the time is this, this idea of separating the art from the artist is like people want it all one way or another. Either someone is so racist and horrible that you dismiss them entirely, or there's nothing to complain about. And, and the reality of course, is that you can be both a horrible person in some ways and still produce great art or stories that move people. And, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give up what's good in you know Lovecraft or or Burroughs or anybody else who's you know got issues, but I I also am not gonna lie about who or what they are. And and the trick is just to be able to hold those two ideas in your head simultaneously, be honest about the person, but um, but also be able to see past that and and be honest about what speaks to you and as a as a creative person to take what's good and do something new with it. Um, and I, I, you know, I know that this is really hard for some people to, to deal with. And, 
And just like little kids who don't want to, you know, just like let me have my fun and leave me alone. There are there are adult fans who just, you know, they hear this and they roll their eyes and they're like, oh, geez, leave me alone with that. Keep your politics out of that. It's like I don't feel anyone is should be compelled to deal with that stuff if they don't want to. If it's if it doesn't concern you or if you're not bothered by the stuff or you just want to ignore it, that's your that's your right. Um, but other people are going to care. And, and then there are those of us who want to talk about the contradiction and talk about the difficulty. And that's, I, I think it's, it's fine for everybody to get what they want out of it uh, mm -hmm. and not require anybody to shut up. You know, it's like, say what you want, take what you want. And if, if my attitude is somewhat different, that's okay. It doesn't have to affect you. Right. Um, I gotcha. Um, so you clearly did a good bit of research for this novel. Has this era always been of interest to you to write a novel in? The 1950s Jim Crow era. No, I mean, I, I, I certainly. I mean, that was one of the things studying, particularly studying with Professor Turner. Just some of the stuff I, you know, some of the things I learned about the era were really fascinating, and I knew that. I, I, I mean, I think what really, what really caught my interest initially was. Uh, things like the Green Book, and and beyond that, just the general infrastructure that that Black folks at the time created to sort of navigate the the world of legal segregation. I mean, the story that everybody kind of knows or thinks they know is a struggle for civil rights. But, you know, while black folks are waiting for, you know, the, the, the arc of history to bend towards justice, they still had to live their day-to-day -day lives. And they came up with all kinds of really clever ways to deal with the fact that, that society just didn't have a place for them. So, you know, uh, and, and the Green Book is one example, just creating guides that sort of help you navigate a hostile countryside. But then there were also sort of parallel you know, if you were black in the 50s, there were a lot of professional organizations that wouldn't let you join. So they created parallel organizations. So you had the white realtors and then you had the realtists, which would let black folks, black folks created themselves and that anyone could be a part of. And you had the regular Freemasons and you had the Prince Hall Freemasons that black folks could be a part of and so forth. And that kind of thing fascinated me. And part of it was that one of the difficulties in writing about racism is that it, it, it's just all too easy to, to get to fall into this rut of just really depressing talking about the misery that people suffered. And it's important to be honest about that. But at the same time, it's just not very enjoyable as a reading experience to focus only on misery. And what's interesting about this is that this way you can be honest about what people face, but then you can also talk about the fact they just didn't sit there and suffer. They like, okay, these are the challenges we have to face now. What are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this? And that's a story that I think is much more interesting and, and, and you can get some real entertainment out of, but it's also something that anybody can, can identify with. It's like, yeah, if, if I were unfortunate enough to be stuck with those challenges that I would hope that I had this kind of courage and, and this kind of ingenuity to figure my way around it. And then you can start rooting for them. And, and again, it's not going to be, Things are not going to end on a note where everyone's happily ever after, but at least they're going to have small triumphs along the way, and and you're going to learn how they cope. And that's just a really interesting story, and that's something I, the kind of thing I really enjoy talking about and telling. So, as you know, as soon as I had heard about that, I I think I'm sure it was probably somewhere in the back of my head. Yeah, at some point I'm going to do something with this, and eventually I found out a way to to use it. Um, Okay. But I also, I mean, I also like, 
I also like learning about aspects of history that people don't necessarily know about. Another big influence on me was um, uh, Professor James W. Lowen uh, wrote a book called Sundown Towns, which is this secret history of whites-only communities in America. And that's where I actually first heard about the Green Book. Um, but he also talks about this, this largely forgotten legacy of you know, basically how the, the modern American demographic landscape came to be. It's like, a, you know, in the, one of the features in the novel, one of the incidents in the novel talks about is the, the Tulsa massacre, the Tulsa race riot, where it's an incident in 1921 where the white citizens of Tulsa turned on the black citizens and basically burned down this historic black neighborhood, killed about 300 people. And, you know, this is often described as like the worst incident of racial violence in American history. But the interesting thing about that is that the reason we we remember it at all was that it wasn't entirely successful. Like the, the goal there was to drive all of these black folks out of Tulsa and it failed ultimately, they stayed. You know, a lot of people died, a lot of people did leave, but they, some of them stayed and rebuilt. But at the same time that was happening, there were plenty of other incidents that are, are you know, never even recorded where uh, white citizens drove out all of the black residents of their, their towns and then kept new ones from moving in. And so today when you're driving cross country and you just, you know, you naturally think of certain parts of the country as, as only white people really live there, places like, you know, Montana or Idaho or, you know, Maine. Um, you know, you, you, there are parts of the country where you just don't expect to encounter anybody who isn't white or it's, it's unusual. And that's not an accident. It's not like black folks didn't want to live in those parts of the country. It's that when they tried, bad things happened to them. Um, and we've pretty much forgotten about all of this. And so it's, it's important to know about it, but it's also just from a, a dramatic perspective, really interesting to know about it and to talk about it and to, to, to tell stories about it. So that's another thing that kind of fed into this. <clears throat> so I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about your main character Atticus, but honestly, just the fact that all of your characters have their own sort of arc throughout the series could you maybe talk a little bit about the main group uh, as a whole and maybe their uh, characteristics and motivations like through this? Because they don't they don't really play the victim card. They really are motivated to change things for the better, uh, at least from what you know, from what how the book reads. Uh, well, and, and, they, and they don't they don't actually I, yeah. I guess they, they play to their struggles, but they also try to overcome <laughs> Well, because yeah, being being a victim won't help them. That there's nobody who's going to get cut them. The, the people who are harming them aren't going to care that that you know that they that they feel bad. Um, so yeah, so Atticus, the main character, he's 22 years old. He's uh, just come back from fighting in the Korean War. He was down in Florida when he gets this letter from his dad. This very strange letter from his father. Uh, you know, saying saying that 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 the father Montrose has discovered something. You know about uh, Atticus's late mother's ancestry. That basically there's this this mysterious legacy that's been kept from him, and he needs to come back to Chicago so that they can go together to this place where his mother's people originally came from to sort of uncover her her this this stolen birthright. And the problem is that the the place the father wants to go is Arkham, Massachusetts, which Atticus, being a nerd, knows is not a real place. It's this imaginary place in Lovecraft country. So, so even though he and his father do not get along at all, and you know his father was really mad at him for joining the army, um, and they haven't spoken since he enlisted, uh, Atticus 
feels he has to go back and, and find out what happened. And, and by the time he gets home, his father has already vanished. And uh, when Atticus makes inquiries, all he knows is that there's this mysterious white guy with this really fancy car, picked up his dad, and then they disappeared. And um, so the other characters, um, Atticus's uncle George, who is the, the actual guy who owns and runs the Safe Negro Travel Agency and publishes the Safe Negro Travel Guide. And he's a fellow nerd. And Atticus actually gets along with him much better than he does with his own father. Um, and George and, and Montrose both grew up in Tulsa. They're originally from there. And their family lost everything in the, in the, uh, in the race riot. Um, and um, it's, it's Montrose, the younger son. His father was actually murdered during the, the riot. And so it, part of the reason he is such an angry individual as an adult is that at this very young age, he saw his father murdered right in front of him. And he's had no reason to change his opinion about white people since then. So, um, so anyway, Atticus and George end up setting off to try and find Montrose. And they are accompanied by Atticus's childhood friend, Letitia Dandridge, who... Um, is a is a you know she was the only female member of the the Southside uh, Science Fiction Club. They were they were sort of fellow nerds in childhood, and they lost touch. And she went off having her own adventures around the world, around the around the country. And um, Letitia is a physically very small person with a big personality, and she's sort of like the the trickster character where. You know, she she's she's got she's very she's never afraid to speak her mind and she's very versatile at getting what she wants. If she can't browbeat you or sweet talk to you into getting giving her what she wants, she will find a way to go around you. And so um, she tags along ostensibly to go visit her brother, Marvin, who's also living in Massachusetts. But she ends up accompanying them all the way to, to what is actually Ardham, Massachusetts and, and getting caught up in their adventures together. And um and then later in the story, her particular adventure is when they get, after they return to Chicago. Um, oops, hold on a second. No, you're good. Um, yeah, after they, at, no, sorry, the phone was ringing. I just wanted to make it. <laughs> so, um, so after they, after they return to, uh, uh, to Chicago, Letitia gets this mysterious bequest, supposedly from her own late father, but really it's, it's a little more complicated than that. And, um, she ends up using the money to, uh, she wants to buy a house for herself and become a landlady. She decides that's her dream. And um, uh, she, you know, the only way to get what she wants basically is to buy a house in a white neighborhood, which is, you know, a dangerous uh, a thing in its own right. And she gets a, she gets, she's in, this is another case of getting a deal that's way too good to be true. And she buys this, what is essentially a mansion called the Winthrop House. Um, and the reason she gets it for a good price, as she quickly figures out, is that the, the place is haunted. So not only should she have to deal with neighbors who want to burn her out, but she's also got this, this ghost in the house who is also white and also racist and doesn't want her there either. And so to keep what she wants, she's got to play the dead off against the living. Um, and then Letitia's sister is named Ruby. Uh, and Ruby is a, you know, she she considers Letitia to be a you know a schemer who's not willing to put in an honest day's work you know whereas Ruby is older and she's the kind of person who you holds down two or three tabs at a time and still basically is you know she would love to have a, a great you know a great opportunity in life she would love to have somebody buy her a mansion too but somehow that never seems to work out and um, 
So she has her own her own story. She ends up having a Jekyll and Hyde story where she goes home with the wrong guy on New Year's Eve and then wakes up in the body of a white woman. And that's that's her thing where she's 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 sort of doing Jekyll and Hyde in reverse, where she gets this opportunity to live life as a white person and enjoy the freedom that comes with that. But of course, this comes with a big cost. So that's her adventure. Um, and then the other characters, um, George and Montrose are both Freemasons. So they're at one point they get coerced into breaking into uh, the a museum in Chicago to steal what is essentially a copy of the Necronomicon, and they recruit their their brother, Prince Hall Freemasons, to help them do this. So there's a whole uh, heist caper involved with that. Um, George's wife, Hippolyta, is a um, She's a, you know, someone who wanted to be an astronomer. And of course, it's not an occupation that was really open to uh, young black women, particularly in the 1930s when she was growing up. And she's got a particular relationship with the discovery of the planet Pluto. Um, you know, when she was, a, she was coming of age as a little girl, she used to go out stargazing with her dad. And um, at that time, there were only eight planets and there were, the search was on for the mysterious planet X. And she really wanted to be the one to find it. But of course, you, you know, you can't do that with a home telescope. Um, and so she's just like, you know, and she, when it is discovered, she like, she's, she like thousands of other children writes in to sort of suggest what the new planet should be named. And she decides it should be named Pluto, which makes sense given, you know, the, the fact that it is this cold and lonely planet in the dark, that's a good name for it. And at first she's very excited when Pluto is announced as the new planet's name, but she realizes that, Oh, they didn't. They didn't take the name from me. They took it from this this white girl in England. Who, even though there's no way her suggestion could have gotten to uh, to the Lowell Observatory before hers, the thing is, the girl who did get to name it had a family connection to astronomers, so she got to jump the line and get credit for coming up with the name, even though Hippolyta thought of it first. So, so her thing is, she just really wants to to find and name some celestial planet, and she. Uh, she gets an opportunity to um, basically there's the, she, she learns about this abandoned, uh, what she thinks is an abandoned astronomical observatory out in the middle of the Wisconsin woods. But when she gets there, she finds it can do more than just look at the stars. So she's got an adventure with that. And then, uh, and then finally there's George and Hippolyta's son, Horace, who's a budding comics artist. And, um, he gets drawn into the story too. And, and his thing is he, he's, he's used, he's used as a, a way for the bad guys to sort of threaten the other characters. So he gets cursed and this devil doll ends up coming after him. So he's got a whole story involved around that. So, so these are sort of the different players and the, the different adventures they have. And um, all of this fits together again into this larger story about this history of them and, and um, their relationship to this, this cabal of white sorcerers out in new England. So Okay. Um, so you touched on it a tiny bit earlier, um, but what are your thoughts, like your, I guess your overall thoughts on Lovecraft as a writer and as an individual? Because I know he did obviously play a part uh, in your writing of this novel. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that, well, it's funny when I first, when I first read him as a kid, I, he's one of those, he's one of those artists who I actually liked his imitators better, not so much for the the racism in Lovecraft, which I honestly wasn't as sensitive to when I was younger, but 
I, I just found the pacing really slow because I'd grown up watching sort of, you know, the 70s action adventure stuff. And and so Lovecraft's big thing is a slow building dread. It's He's the kind of writer where if the monster shows up at all, it'll be in the last page of the story. And it's all about these people wandering around and you, you know, you know, something bad is going to happen and you're waiting for it and you're waiting for it and you're screaming at them to get out. But, you know, they don't, they just keep going and eventually they either die or go mad. And, but as a kid, I was just like, when is something going to happen? Why is it, you know, why is this so slow? And um, so I tended to prefer the, the sort of latter day interpreters of Lovecraft who sped up the pace a little and use shorter words and less flowery language. As an adult, I came to appreciate him more for what he did. And, and there are, you know, I, I, I really do admire some of his stories. My three favorites are probably At the Mountains of Madness, Call of Cthulhu, and, uh, and Shadow Over Innsmouth. Um, obviously, the racism is a big deal. Um, but again, I don't, if it were nothing but like when, when Lovecraft does stuff like, you know, he's telling a decent story like Reanimator, but then he interrupts the narrative to, to waste time on, on a, a racist joke that he assumes you as the reader are going to laugh along with. It's not so much that I'm personally offended as I'm just sort of annoyed and kind of embarrassed for him that, that he's doing this. And it's, it's just leaving aside the moral issue. It just makes the story worse. And I'm just like, you know, why are you doing this? You know, why are right. you, you're an intelligent human being. Why don't you see how stupid this is? And and why are you wasting my time and making the story bad by getting into this crap? And, um, but you know, it's like, if, if it were just that stuff, if that was all he had to offer was, was racist humor, then there'd be nothing there for me. And I would just dispense with it and let it go. But there's, there's enough there when he's not indulging that side of himself that I, I, I I can get something out of it and and find stuff I enjoy and want to take from it. And it's not a deal breaker for me. And now obviously other people coming to this, particularly, you know, black folks or other groups that he, he insults directly in his fiction may have a very different reaction than I do. And I totally respect that. Um, and they may not want to hear about it and they may wish he would just sort of shrivel up and go away, but he's part of the cultural DNA of sci-fi and, and, and cosmic horror now. And I don't think he's going anywhere. Um, so, uh, but yeah, for me, it's just take what you can and like about him and you can leave the rest. And, um, yeah, it was so kind of, it's kind of like not throwing him to the wayside because of one aspect, but being able to appreciate what he did do, I guess, not, not necessarily right, but well. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, some it? of the stuff he does, he does do it right. I mean, hmm as far as, as building tension and stuff, you can learn a lot about how to build dread by reading his work. And, you know, there are times even when he's, he's, his specific motives may be kind of disgusting. He still manages to tap into something else. Like the, the, the good example I is, is, you know, shadow over Innsmouth where the, the, the specific horror that he's writing about that this guy stuck in this town full of people who've been breeding with monsters from the sea is like, that's speaking directly, I think, to, to Lovecraft's fear of race mixing and, and real life, you know, pollution of the blood, which I think probably grows out of the fact that both of his parents died of is, you know, his father probably died of tertiary syphilis and he died in a mental institution. And then some years later, his mother died in that same mental institution, probably from the same disease contracted from Lovecraft's father. 
So I think that may have fed into this ongoing horror that he had with with tainting of blood and you know and which he put a racist spin on. And so and that definitely plays into shadow over Innsmouth. But the thing about that story is that it's also about the horror of getting stuck in a town where the people all want to kill you as soon as the sun goes down. And obviously you don't have to be a white supremacist to find that scenario frightening or want to do something with it. And it, it's very effective as that kind of, as a story of attempted lynching, it, it's, you can learn a lot from it. And again, if you don't get sidetracked or, or if you, if you can get past what Lovecraft himself thought he was doing, it's still a really well-told story. So um, so I got, I got two more questions for you. One, um, I mean, I guess it's not really a question. It's more just like a talking point. Um, so the Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval, uh, was published by Tor.com, dropped the same day as Lovecraft Country. So it yeah, takes... Was, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, you it know, takes a short story, the horror at Red Hook, and retells it as it was a you know POV of a black protagonist. So it's like mm -hmm. an inversion of a Lovecraftian tale. So have you had a chance to read it? And if so, what are your thoughts? Oh yeah, I've read it. I, it was funny. I, I became aware of it as the publication date of Lovecraft Country was drawing closer. And it was interesting because I had not heard of Victor before. And, um, and of course they ended up by the amazing coincidence dropping on the exact same day. So yeah, I read it as soon as it came out and I really liked it. Um, I mean, Victor was playing a different game than I was because he was directly addressing Lovecraft and basically taking what is generally regarded as one of his most racist stories and flipping it on, on its head and making the, the viewpoint character someone who was who would have been there, but, but somebody who Lovecraft didn't even regard as fully human. And I thought that was a really clever thing to do. Um, whereas in Lovecraft Country, I was really, despite the title, and this is, I, I, I was kind of asking for this, I guess, by calling it that, it was me less about specifically addressing Lovecraft as using Lovecraft as a way of getting at that, the difficulty of the experience of readers like Victor encountering Lovecraft and other racist authors and, and trying to, to figure out, you know, what do I do with this guy? You know, I love, I love this kind of fiction, but it doesn't love me back. What do I, what do I do? Um, so we were both, we were both sort of in the same ballpark, but doing different things. And it was sort of fascinating. And then eventually we, you know, I think, I think we first got in touch because uh, someone at Barnes and Nobles had us dialogue about our different con in our different books and what we were trying to do. And then we eventually met and we've become friends and um, it's just been a wonderful thing. And like, we're both real appreciators of our work and, and each other's work. And it's just been a, it's been a great relationship. So and um, you know he's working on a uh, a televised version of Black Tom for AMC. It's not as far along as Lovecraft Country, but you know I, I have high hopes for it as well. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that what what comes of that. So, um, but yeah, so it's it's been a nice thing to meet him and just there's a lot you can do in this space and there's a lot of things you can do with this idea. So it's great to it's great to see. Him. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely love that novella. Um, and I, and I was curious if y'all had gotten in touch cause I, I think that'd be a pretty cool dialogue between you oh, two. Yeah. So, um, all right. So last question I got for you, uh, what are some books that you've read recently that you'd recommend? I know you've been talking about binge watching shows, but has there been anything you've read recently that you've, uh, you're high on? Wow. Um, I always love this question because it just it blindsides everybody. <laughs> no, I mean, I, yeah, this is the problem. Is that like as I was explaining that that um, one of the things about the this um, 
the pandemic is just that it's made it really hard to concentrate on fiction. Um, I, you know, I, I mean, I think the last book I read entirely was probably uh, William Gibson's Agency because I was a big fan of the peripheral and I wanted to see where that went. And, and since then, I've been having a hard time concentrating on fiction. So I've been, we've been mostly just binge watching stuff. Um, and if I were going to recommend something that I'd, I'd read, you know, I'd seen recently, it, it's the, the two things I've been recommending most to people because they really moved me were... Um, one is a, a, a miniseries called Sacred Games on uh, Netflix, which is basically um, set in, in Mumbai, Bombay, and it's uh, a, uh, a policeman named Sargtaj Singh. And uh, basically he gets, a, he gets a phone call from a, uh, a famous gangster, a famous fugitive gangster named Guy Tond, who basically tells him that in, you know, in 25 days, the city is going to be destroyed unless you save it. And uh, before he can explain further, he kills himself to avoid capture. And so this, the story from there basically goes back and forth between the backstory of how this gangster came to power and how he came to learn about this, you know, this apocalyptic plan to destroy Mumbai. And this present-day attempt of this policeman, this uh, to to sort of find out and stop this disaster from happening, and it's. Um, I was turned on to this by the author Matt Johnson, who's a, a he's a, he's written a book called Pim. He's written a book called Loving Day, and um, uh, his 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 thing is like, are, are more people watching this? It's batshit crazy, and it really is. It's this amazing, like, technically it's a thriller, but it is just this amazing over-the-top storytelling that that set against the backdrop of Indian political history, which is something else I didn't really know much about. So that that was also really interesting too, just the cultural perspective, but it's just a really amazing and engrossing story. Um, and then one of the supporting actors in the story, Radhika Apte, it, she, um, she stars in another Netflix miniseries. It's a shorter one called Ghoul, which is a, a horror story uh, set in a dystopian future India that's basically being run by this military dictatorship. And um, she's like this budding um, intelligence officer, but she's a true believer in the system. And she ends up turning her own father, who's this sort of radical college professor, she turns him into the, the government, hoping that, you know, he'll be properly re-educated and sort of return to society. And of course, you know, they kill him. But she doesn't know that, and her reward for her loyalty and turning her dad in basically is to be sent to work at this black site that tortures political prisoners. And the day she arrives, they're awaiting uh, this particularly notorious terrorist who they're supposed to break in 24 hours. But the, the twist is that the guy is possessed by a supernatural creature that's been summoned specifically to punish the torturers for their sins. So it, it's this case of monsters ha being having to deal with a monster that's much more horrible than they are and it's a it's this great sort of creepy it will definitely appeal to lovecraft fans but it's this yeah it's this creepy sort of horror but also action story and and this this sort of kick-ass indian woman with a shotgun trying to defend herself against a ghoul so it's it's a really good story and these are both on netflix and they're both really worth checking out and those are the things i think that that have kind of blown me away most recently. I wish I had, I wish I had actual fiction to talk about as well, but it's true. It's like I've, um, TV has taken up a lot of that, that same, that same mental space that, that reading, reading used to So especially now, cause it's just so hard to focus with, uh, with all that's going on in the world. 
Yeah, but I guess I guess TV and writing, huh? Yeah. Yeah. But even so the writing you, is yeah. Is it is it is it taking an unfortunate backseat? Again, it's just, you know, I'm not super disciplined to begin with, and it's even harder to to do now. It's just like, yeah, I, I could be working on this today, but you know, why don't I just yeah, go play some video games? You know, I just published a novel about video games. That's excuses me to do this. So yeah, it's research. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so are you working on anything right now? Uh, in particular, do you have a, do you have a new, I'm assuming highly original <laughs> story? Well, actually the, the thing is, yeah, I'm, I'm not normally a sequel guy. I've been, but since finishing Lovecraft Country, there's a part of me that just wanted to do more with the characters. And the problem being that if I open it up again, there's just going to be I, I, you know, if I do go back into the world of Lovecraft Country, I'm going to want to carry the story forward at least till 1963, when the the you know the Safe New York Travel Guide would cease publication because the the Civil Rights Act passes, and um, that's not one book. That's probably two or three. So it's a big thing, but I I haven't been able to let it go. And this is basically, if I'm ever really going to do this, now is the time to take a run at it. And so that's that's what I've been trying to do, and. I, I can't, there's a part of me that wants to stop talking about it because I've been talking this way about it for, you know, the past three years and I, I have done some, some of the writing, but I just, it's sort of like I'm equivocating and equivocating. And at some point I got to either do it or give it up. And so now is sort of the moment when I'm going to do that now. So, you know, in, in another six months, I will have, I will know one way or another, whether that's what's next. And if not, I, I can at least let it go having said, yeah, okay. That wasn't going to happen, and and then I will have something new. I've got other ideas that are, are 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 bouncing around, but right now it's the easiest thing to focus on, and I really want to see if I can go somewhere with it. So, that's awesome. Well, Matt, uh, I appreciate you coming on today. Uh, definitely looking forward to the new series on HBO. And like I said, everybody, Lovecraft Country is. I mean, it's been out for a few years now in book form, but the show premieres on HBO next Sunday, the sixteenth. Uh, and I forgot how many episodes is it? Eight or 10? I can't remember ten, exactly. Ten. 10. Okay. Um, and, uh, the trailers are out. You can watch them if, uh, if that's what interests you. Uh, highly recommend picking up the novel. If you want to see a little bit of background behind the show, uh, or watch the show and then read the book, which, whichever you prefer. But, uh, but Matt, again, just congratulations on the success of the, of the book and of hopefully of now the show. But like I said, if, if anything, any of the early reviews or, you know, going to show what it's going to be like. And I mean, we're in for a heck of a ride. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. I, 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 it's a heck of a ride for me too. So um, I really look forward to it. And and thank you very much for having me on. Absolutely. And, uh, and, you know, if you continue this, uh, you know, if you continue the story of your characters, uh, you know, we'll, maybe we can chat again about it or maybe even sure. when your next novel comes out, I'd love to have you back on. Okay. Well, thank you very much, man. Well, enjoy the rest of your week uh, leading up to the show's uh, release on Sunday. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> try to breathe a little bit between now and then. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely. Have a good one.